you haven't got your Bibles, grab your Bible. We're going to go to James. We're going to be reading from chapter 4 as we continue a series we've entitled Bold Living, doing what we love to do as part of our time together, an act of worship, which is to really grab a hold of God's Word. We're so grateful for this book. It's not just a book of stories and information. It is His very God-breathed, inspired Word, able to change us, convict us, challenge us, and mold us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray, and we'll see what the Lord might want to do in our midst this morning. So Father, we, we thank you for this time. What a privilege it is to gather around your living Word. God breathed, alive and active. And we ask, Lord, that through the power of your Spirit, your word would go forth with great power this morning. Not because we deserve it, but Lord, because we desperately need it. We need you. We need your touch. We need your grace. We need you to mold us and make us and shape us. And not only for our own sake, Lord, but for the sake of a world that is in such desperate need of your glorious grace. So this morning, Lord, in whatever way you desire... Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in our hearts and our lives. We pray together. We come in faith, ready with listening ears, with a receptive heart, to hear your voice, the voice of the Good Shepherd. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing, as I said, our series. If you've just come in, James chapter 4, I'm going to read from. Let me give you one verse at the end of... Chapter 3, excuse me, just so we're on the same page. James, it's this practical book, and he goes many different places. We've talked about being a people who have a faith that's not just hearing, but it's doing. We talked about words. Most recently, we talked about wisdom. How is it that we know the wisdom that we so desperately need? Not just information. It's a world full of information, but we want to be a people of wisdom. And not even human earthly wisdom, but of godly wisdom. And James begins his book saying, if ever you lack wisdom, just ask. He's a God who desperately desires for us to walk in and put in place wisdom, godly wisdom. And this is the picture that he finished with in verse 17. He says, for the wisdom that comes from above, it's pure, peaceable, peaceable, gentle, Open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And here it is, verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, I mentioned that verse for the reason that we're about to hit a very stark contrast from the picture that James has just concluded this passage of Scripture with. He said, here is the picture. Imagine a field. It's full, it's ready to harvest. You're seeing that in your mind's eye. What is this crop in the field? It is righteousness, goodness, and peace. And this is both the privilege but the priority for believers that that would be the reality of our lives. As we look around us, there's a harvest of peace and of righteousness and of goodness. You see, that's what really James is after not just some sort of a behavior modification, not just an additional to do to put on your list, to try harder, 
but this internal transformation from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that produces things in our lives and around us. So I won't ask for a show of hands, but just think for a moment. For how many people is that picture a reality? You look around your life, you look at your family, you look at your circumstances. All you see everywhere is fields of righteousness and goodness and peace and joy. Hopefully, for most of us, there's at least elements and parts of that. But don't worry if that's not the case, because you're not alone. And that is exactly what James is going to outline in chapter 4. It's almost like he moves from this picture. He's like, oh, wouldn't that be amazing if that was just the reality? Remember, he's a pastor of our church, of everybody's lives. That's what I want. But then back to reality. He says in verse 4.1, But what is it that causes quarrels and what is it that causes fights among you? So from that picture to this picture of fights and quarrels, in fact, we're going to talk a lot about conflict. What happens when conflict comes? And James here, he's not saying if it happens. He's saying when it happens. This is a reality within the church environment, within the world around us, certainly, within our personal relationships, our family units. It is inevitable at some point in time along the road, and I'm sure everybody in a marriage or a family or who has breath in their lungs would attest to this reality, that conflict sooner or later is inevitable. You find the right person, it's perfect for a while, and then maybe you discover that they're not quite everything that you thought they might be. Then they discover that you're definitely not everything that you thought you were. (laughs) And conflict inevitably ensues. It, it, It arises. So the question is not how we avoid conflict, but how we move through conflict. And in fact, more than that, What James is really going to identify is how we fight the right battles. If you want a sermon, you can call it fighting the right battles or fighting well. Because we're going to talk about some negative examples and we'll talk about resisting the enemy. There there is a good fight. We, We use that expression often, don't we? Fighting the good fight. So there are good battles and the right battles and there are... The wrong battles. And opening this up, it's almost like this. He loves to ask questions, doesn't he, James? He says, but where, where does it all come from? Where does all this strife, this disagreement, quarrels, issues, where does it come from? Well, let's think about that for a moment. And I can attest in my own family environment where there's quarrels, where there's fights, which there is, you know, only between my children, of course. But as I come there and I say to them, all right, everyone calm down. What is the situation? What's the first thing that they're likely to tell me in response? That's right. That's right. Well, she did this and she pulled my hair. Sorry. And she did that too. And she did something else. See, it's never our fault, is it? It's always the husband. It's always the wife. It's always the kids, it's always the government, it's the weather, it's the marbo, it's everything else, it's everyone else, and the only one certainty is that it is never us. And James has this way of kind of 
unpacking this issue and then saying, okay, but hang on a sec, let's really delve deeper and let's examine our own hearts. And this is exactly what he's going to do. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And as I said, we can apply this in a church setting, we can apply this in a family setting, whatever setting you like. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you are wrong. ask wrongly to spend it upon your own passions. So he's saying first reality in this picture is it's inevitable that conflict will arise. And does it not ultimately come from within? From this... Inevitable, insatiable lust is the actual literal word, not just passions. It's much stronger than that. This inevitable, insatiable lust of the human heart. Just think about it on a bigger scale for a moment. I was watching the news with my girls during the week and happened to be a night where some oil tankers were blown up in the Gulf Passage. There's all sorts of things happening around the world. The Middle East is a hotbed of not only political, but there's a lot of prophetic stuff that's happening there. Sermon for another day. But it was fascinating to watch this particular occurrence. And my girl said to me, so who's to blame? Like, whose fault is it? And as we watched the news report, well, the Iranians blame the Americans and the Americans blame the Iranians and someone else blames the Russians and someone says, what's the political instability? It's the economic sanctions. It's this, that and the other. And yes, you could probably build a case on any and all of those different aspects and elements. But if you really peel back the layers, if we remove the nation or any of those elements, would we ever solve the issue of conflict? Of course we wouldn't. Why? Because underneath it all is what? The insatiable desire in the human heart, the lust of the human heart for power, for influence, for control and for money. And that's really what James is saying. He says you can take any conflict at all. Any disagreement, any fight, and if you peel back far enough, although we want to blame other people and we want to blame circumstances, we want to blame what's going on in political affairs, whatever it might be, ultimately there's a source that comes from the lusts or the passions that are at war within the human heart. And so we're going to talk about, okay, that being the case, and, and all the way through this passage, we're going to see this, this battle language, fighting, quarreling, conflict, resisting, fighting the right battles. How do we go about making sure that we're fighting the right battles? My uh, extended family, in fact, both sides of the family, and there's a few other groups now added, have started up these WhatsApp chat groups. Anyone know, do you know what I'm talking about with a which are actually, they're fantastic pieces of technology. So particularly in our busy society, you get a group of friends, I've had a few different social networks, as I said, family groups that start up. Great way to share photos and to keep in touch with what people are doing. But there's this one group in particular, an extended family group, and most of the time it's fantastic. It's, you know, photos of kids and different things. And every now and then there's just this little spark of a comment. Someone just puts this little comment there and you can just see that this is going to move from a spark into a wildfire. Anyone know those kind of moments? Maybe it's not on a family WhatsApp group. 
And, and I find it really interesting because my natural predisposition, if there's a moment, I want to just jump right in. And else like that, I'm like, fantastic. Here's another moment to... And as I've examined this and as I've thought it through, moment of personal honesty here, I wonder how much time genuinely in my life I spend wasting putting all this time and effort into the wrong battles. The end of the day, do those battles really count? I mean, they, they kind of make me feel something. I feel justified. I feel a bit better about myself, maybe. Another moment to just exert my intellectual superiority or my strength or to win an argument. But at the end of the day, am I really fighting the right battles? I want to help us to identify when we are, when we're not, and how we do it. And I'm praying this will be helpful for all of us. And maybe there's a few moments in your life where you realize perhaps you have been sidetracked a little. So let's unpack this a little bit more. How do we know if we're fighting the wrong battles? And very first, right up front, he says this. This is the source. There's passions that are at war within you. Again, so it's this battle technology. It says you've got to recognize this, that there will always be conflicting passions. And for them to be at war, there must be, let's extrapolate it a little bit further, some that are good and some that are bad. And I'm kind of presuming that, you know, we, we spent some time last time in the book of James going through how do we know when things, when passions, when desires are from God or from us. I gave the example, if you were here, of riding a motorcycle, test driving it, this moment with the Lord where, you know, it's just crystal clear. The Lord's speaking. The Lord wants me to have this motorbike. How could something that feels so good ever be wrong? Ever thought that or felt that? Maybe not in those words, but that's a, a common phrase we use. How, how could it be wrong if it feels this good? The problem, of course, with that line of reasoning is that it says in the Bible that our heart is deceitfully wicked. Not even just a little bit. It's, it's deceitfully wicked. Now, there's nothing wrong with feelings in and of themselves, but there is always going to be issues when you elevate feelings to the place of judge and jury as to determining what is right and wrong. So I'm presuming here, not talking about whether these passions are right and wrong, I'm saying that there will be some that are right and wrong, and if you want to know how to tell if they're right or wrong, that's a message for another day. But there's this battle then between these passions that are always going to be warring against one another. A silly example. A couple of weeks ago, the gym down the road, I know I'm always proselytizing for the gym. My workmates get very tired of it. I'm continually encouraging them to come with me, doing my good job as a gym member. It's yet to bear any fruit, but it's about sowing seeds sometimes, isn't it? Just I live in faith. So a couple of weeks ago, the gym, they changed their programs, and I, I like to do some weights by myself, and I like to do some gym classes, and they changed their schedule. It's not just my gym. My wife went along this week to a class, and she turned up, and she said, has the rapture happened? Where is everybody? What's going on? It's obviously a thing that gyms do come wintertime. And the problem for me is that I had this time slot, about four or five o'clock really works well for me because I work and then go to the gym and then head home. But they've got rid of all of those 
particular classes in that time slot. So it's now either really late at night, which doesn't work because we live out of, time, out of town, or really early in the morning. I'm talking before it's even human to be awake. <laughs> if I'm up before the sun rises, there's just something wrong. But there's six o'clock classes. I know some people start much earlier than that. And uh, I'd have to be up at five ungodly o'clock or earlier to get to these gym classes on time. So here's what I thought. I thought, well, I have this, this passion and it's a genuine passion and desire to be fit and to be healthy and to go to the gym. Good desire? It's a, it's a, it's a good desire. And so I thought, well, I also have this desire to sleep. And I really, particularly on a cold winter's morning, I love just snuggling up onto the blanket and pre pretending that you know the day's not beginning for as long as humanly possible. So I thought to myself, this is the way I'll approach it, because you know they're, they're both good desires. So I'll just I'll I'll let the Lord decide. <laughs> Said I'm not going to set my alarm. You know, I'll, I'll if the Lord wants me to be at the gym at six o'clock in the morning, He's a big God, you know. He can make sure he wakes me up. Well, it's been a couple of weeks. So how do you think I went? <laughs> Quick test, a couple of weeks, you know, probably 10 possible classes. Who's thinking, well, surely he went to like eight or nine classes at least. It's up at four o'clock anyway, fasting and deceiving for the nations. Show of hands, anyone think maybe eight, eight, nine? Nobody. Not even one, not even one. What about in the middle, four or five times over two weeks? There's a couple of hands, thank you, thank you. Some faith in your pastor, I appreciate that. There's a lot of big donuts around the room. How many people think that I have not even made it once in two weeks to... That's unbelievable. Well, either you know me too well... Or you at least know how my sermon illustrations work. But the reality is, I have not been to one of those classes yet. I'm sad to admit. I live in hope. I live in faith. Why is that? Because there are these warring passions. Something's always going to give way. And that's what James is saying. is You've got to realize that there is passions and there's a war going on. You've got to know where you're headed. Who walks onto the battlefield and says, well, you know, I'm in the middle of the battlefield. I could fight today. Maybe I'll just set up my sun lounge and drink pina coladas instead and, you know, just take it easy. And if the Lord wants... Who, who does that? Nobody. If there's a battle, then you've got to be strategic. If there's a battle, then you've got to be disciplined enough. If that's the goal, if, if the godly desire is to be fit and healthy, you've got to set an alarm. I've got to tell the kids to come and jump on my head in the morning until I'm awake and alert. Get my wife to make me a cup of coffee, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, as she does every morning in my dreams. Let's not go there. Move on. Let's move on. See, it's not that we would have these passions. What he's really getting down to is he's saying, what passions are you allowing to reign and rule in your life? If you want to fight the right battles, that's where it starts with. How are you being disciplined about you know, these particular things? How intentional are you about living out the good and godly and the right passions 
in your life? Or are you just apathetic? Just we'll see what happens. I can guarantee you where that's going to take you every single day of the week. Let's leave it there. So there's, there's this sense of intentionality. The second thing is he talks, he's got these two pictures in here of prayer. He says, you do not ask because, you don't have because you do not ask. And then verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So really, first of all, he's saying, if you want to fight the right battles, look at the intentionality of your life. Number two, he says, examine your prayer life. How's your prayer life doing? You see, nothing happens unless it happens first in prayer. And the first picture is you don't have because you don't ask. So he's saying there is no prayer. It's completely non-existent. Now, obviously, that's an issue. And in fact, that's an issue. James ends with this wonderful passage about prayer. He just, I love what James has to say about prayer and the importance of prayer and the power of prayer. But we're going to save that for when we get there. But let's look a little bit at the second category. So saying one category is that there just is no prayer. And if there's no prayer, we've got to realize the importance, the priority. We've got to be a prayerful people. But here's the other category of prayer is that you do ask, but you never receive because you're asking for your own benefit and for your own motivations. I don't know about you, but if, if I'm in the midst of a conflict, of a really difficult situation, maybe someone has really irked me, they've rubbed me up the wrong way, like I'm really feeling something. Anyone ever got into the prayer closet like that, in that kind of particular space without having dealt anything? And you get before the Lord, and what does your prayer look like? Oh Lord, would you please smite them? May they rot in hell... I'll leave it there. <laughs> Let's not go any further. You see, it's so easy, particularly when, when there's stuff going, around, going on around us for our prayers to become very much focused on ourselves. Rather than, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. It's far more, let my will be done on earth, as I'm convinced it definitely should be in heaven. We come before God with our shopping list. And, and James has something to say about this. You see, look at this very next verse. I think this is incredibly abrasive, and yet hopefully it will also end up being encouraging. He says this, verse 4, You adulterous people! Exclamation mark. Sometimes his pastoral tenderness it just seeps out, doesn't it? just flows. You adulterous people! Why is it that he makes such an incredibly brash statement? But if you think about it, and this is the, I know it's a backhanded compliment, but he's calling them an adulterous people. Now, what do you have to be to be an adulterer? It's not a trick question. Someone said it. You have to be married, yeah? That's how it works. Adultery 101. You have to be married in order for you to be able to commit adultery. And so what he's really saying, I know it's in a backhanded way, we'll get to what he means by it, but he's saying you've got to recognize this. This is serious because you're not your own. You were bought with a price. There is a commitment that God has made to you in the context of a covenant. And just read on to get the full picture of this. Do you not know, he says, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it says to no purpose where the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit he has placed and made to dwell in us? Some controversy over the particular translation of that verse. But I think the message is clear. He's saying this, you've got to recognize this. There is a jealous in a good way, God. He's jealous in his affection towards you. He's jealous in his commitment towards you. I mean, I feel this holy jealousy towards my kids, my four girls growing up in a world that sometimes I think I'm jealous to protect them, to guard them, to do whatever I can. That's the reality that James is trying to get through here. He's paid for you with a price. He's made a commitment in a covenant. He is desperately jealous for your affections. And yet somehow you've made this all about you, which is why he says you're adulterous people. See, I think the problem is, and this is what I think that James is trying to unpack there, and I know this has all been in the negative and then I've got a few things in the positive and we'll all be encouraged and leave happy. But there's this tendency that we, we don't mean to, but we're always drawn to make the relationship that we have with God far more about us. For example, I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago with a guy who I catch up with every now and then. He's a lovely guy, believes in Jesus, but wants nothing to do with church. I'm sure you've all met some people like this. And I continually say to him and I encourage him and I, and I try and push him in the direction. And I say, well, what, why don't you feel like you need church? And he says, well, you know, there's lots of great podcasts around. I listen to podcasts. There's lots of great coffee shops. The coffee's much better there than it is at church. There's conferences I go to. I listen to the worship here. It's fantastic. The teaching over there. The people are better looking at that place. I, I get the best of every Christian experience there is around. So why is there any place in my life for church? And I said, well, that's exactly the problem. Because what we've done is taken this smorgasbord and we've made everything about what? Everything is all about me. Everything's all about my desires. Everything's all about my needs. I want it all, but really ultimately, I want it for my own benefit. What a travesty that is of the gospel. Effectively, we're saying that Jesus has come. He's poured out his precious blood upon the cross so that we might become the center of our own existence, so that we might simply love ourselves better and serve our own needs more effectively. Can you see how in contrast to the true gospel that message is? And we might not proclaim it in such a way, but I guarantee you I hear it in different forms all the time. And James says that's got to stop. Can't you realize you're actually being an adulterous people? You're not being faithful to the God who is jealous, who purchased you with his blood to make himself the center of your existence so that you could love him, so that you could be reconciled and restored to him. There's so much more to this 
story. You see, he's saying here there's a battle for our affection. The question is not whether we'll love, it's what we will make the source of our love. And we are continually thirsty, continually drawn to make our affections the things of this world. To put up a mirror and admire all that we can do and all that we can be. The problem is, as he said, he says, if you are friends with the world, you will be an enemy of God. Your affection for one will rob you of the affection of the other. This love is mutually exclusive. He is a God who will not share his love and his affection with another. Remember what he said to the Laodicean church? He said, I'd rather you be hot or cold. Just whatever you do, don't try and share your affection with me, with your affection for yourself or with the world. He is a holy jealous God it's all or it is nothing what is the passion of our life is it the wealth of this world or the riches of grace what has the greater appeal is it the pleasures of the world or the riches of his or the pleasures that are at God's right hand what dominates our thinking and our motivation and The essence of who we are. Is it worldly advancements and achievements? Is it, as John's addressing the insatiable lust of the human heart? Or is it the only thing that will ever truly satisfy? His love and his grace and his goodness. All right, so let's move along. I've got a couple of things to hopefully, as I said, Bring us back up from that place. Are we doing all right? Are we alive? And Okay, thank you, I will. See, here's the good news, and this is where it starts to get really good. Remember we read, he yearns jealously over us, over the spirit that he has placed in us. Verse 6, let me set it up this way. Going back to my example the quarrelling of my children as I've come. What's going on here? It's, it's her, she, him. What's my response as a father? This is my first response. My first response is to punish. Just is. Just is. You go to your room, you're banned from iPad for a week, etc., etc. I deal with the situation. I say that for this reason. God's response is so different. Remember, James has just said, you're, you're committing spiritual adultery. He's given you so much and you're just spending it on yourself. You're chasing after other loves. But here's the incredible news. What does he do? But, is, is it punishment? Is it judgment? He says, but he gives more grace. Oh, praise God for his grace. The more we sin, the more he pursues us with his goodness and his grace. He's not standing there ready to remove his hand of blessing. You've committed adultery. No. He stands there ready to give grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to who? Grace to the humble. 
Here's the very first thing. This is, this is what we need to do in response. We've looked at the sources of these, of the, of the conflicts. This is the solution. Number one is remember and never stop learning the importance of humility. To humble ourselves. Ever since mankind was created, there's been a battle, not for the throne of heaven, but for the throne of the hearts of humanity. There's this pride that wants to assert its independence in an attempt to dislodge God as the sovereign king. See, everything in the world is about making us be big. I don't know why I thought of this, but as I was talking about that, I was remembering an example of uh, my wife and I, when we had three kids, we had this opportunity to spend a few months traveling the U.S. And as we were traveling through in this camper van through California, camping by these picturesque mountains and lakes and in the midst of woods, and there's something that I'd never heard of before, an animal called a mountain lion. Anyone heard of a mountain lion? Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of a mountain lion, never knew that it existed. It's a big cat, not quite as big as a lion, but sizable enough to do some damage. And we learnt nearly by mistake. We camped at this particular lake one time. And uh, I got up early in the morning, as I often do, not quite six o'clock at that ungodly hour, a little bit later. And I was off for a run. And just as I was leaving, there were some other campers up the other end of the campsite. And literally, I could see, you know, they had intensity in their eyes. And they came over and they said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going for a run. And they said, do not go up those woods by yourself, especially not without any kind of protection. There's, there's mountain lions up there. You've got to realize what is around. Anyway, we, we visited um, a few of the ranger huts. And if ever you meet a mountain lion, if you have weaponry, that's fine. But if not, this is what they told us. The key to um, approaching a mountain lion, some animals, they're different in the way you approach them. But the idea is with a mountain lion, you've got to make yourself as big as possible. So they said, you know, if you've got little kids, put them up on your shoulders and make as much noise as you can because the bigger you are, the more likely they are to be frightened off. Make noise, stand up on your tippy toes. If you can, grab a big stick, make yourself look as scary as possible because there's a good chance that if you look big enough, then you're going to frighten them and scare them off. If that doesn't work, panic, run, scream, and just pray that someone else is around with a gun. But you see, isn't that the way that we approach situations in the natural? What do we do the moment that there's conflict, that there's a mountain lion there? We want to make ourselves big. We want to do everything we can to assert our authority. And yet James is giving us the exact opposite solution. He's saying if you're in conflict and you want to fight well, you've got to learn what it is to make yourself Small. And here's the thing. He says, if, if you make yourself big, if you're proud, God himself will oppose you. Whereas if you live a life of humility, God will give you grace and he will exalt you. So just weigh that up for a moment. Think that through. God himself opposing me. You know, and and that, that, that word means to, to literally come against you. God oppose you versus God give you grace and exalt I'll let you weigh that one up yourself. So that's the first one. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
So second thing that we need to do is remember to never lose your worship. Never lose your worship. What an incredible promise this is that the God of the heavens, the God who created all that we are and all that we have, he promises, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. See, the world's battle is always to win. The believer's battle is to worship. Remember a story that a a very well-known worship leader shared. She said, she was heading to church, knew she was, she was on, on worship that particular evening. She just had a, a horrible day, had three kids in the back of the car, had her father-in-law sitting next to her. You know, just one of those really difficult afternoons. And uh, as she was about to hop out of her car, head into church, she said to her father-in-law sitting next to her, she's like, all right, off with the mummy hat, on with the worship hat. And the way she describes it is she said, my father-in-law looked directly at me and said, the problem is that the worship had ever came off. See, there is a reality of worshipping, not just when we're here on a Sunday, not just when things are good, but when you're in the midst of a battle. So I found this a very helpful tool. If I'm about to jump into one of those conflicts, if I'm about to say something to my kids, if I'm about to respond in a different way, Just thinking through, is my response to win or is my response to worship? Because that totally changes the way you respond, doesn't it? How is this conversation here, this circumstance, my response to the circumstance, how is this or can this be an act of worship? Rather than an an act of getting what I want out of the circumstance or situation, to be right, to prove myself. Are we winning or are we worshipping? And then finally, the last one here. He says this. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Second half of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And again, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Who feels encouraged by that verse? What on earth is James saying to us there? Make sure you take your daily dose of lemon juice so that you can be really miserable as you approach your day. That's not it at all. You see, what he's literally saying there is he's saying, draw near to God, he will draw near to you, but make sure you take sin seriously. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, do not be double minded and then finishes off again humble yourselves before the lord and he will exalt you be serious in dealing with the stuff that we need to deal with don't let things hang around how often do we not only allow them but we enable them whatever that might be is it worry is it bitterness? Is it envy? Judgment? <coughs> Discouragement? Is there a place for these things in our lives? Or will we be a people who take those words? Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be single minded. 
single-minded in our trust and our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to pray. Put your Bibles away. There's someone who can come and play keys. Let's just give the Lord a bit of space this morning as we listen to the words of James. Hopefully not my words, but just asking the Holy Spirit what it is that he might want to say to each one of us here. It's interesting, when we began the book of James, I had quite a few people say, Oh, I love the book of James. So practical. So much wisdom in there. And it is a great book. But at times it's a little bit like the greatness of a a dentist visit. You know it's for your good, but you know it's going to hurt a little as well. And James is dealing with some real issues. Remembering he says this, he says it's not if conflict is going to come, it's when. guarantee that each of us could think of some area of conflict in our life. Maybe it is currently in your marriage. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe it's in friendship groups. Fill in the blank. Family, extended family. And I simply want to ask you, as, as James has... Are you fighting the right battles? Where does the problem lie? Is it all, well, they did this and this person did that? And Is there a place where maybe in this moment of honesty before the Lord, you're like, you know what, there, there is this tension of passions and I know that I need to be more intentional. There are, there are things that, that I just need to to get in check. Maybe it's your prayer life. I mean, for, for me, that's always a challenge. Are you in the camp of it being more non-existent than existent? Or maybe as James has identified, we're in a place where all I ever pray about is really, if I'm honest, my shopping list, my stuff. And, and let me say, that's not, that's not bad. We need to be real with God. We need to be able to, as, as David came and just bared his heart before the Lord. But he never finished before getting his eyes back. And yet, yet I'll trust in God. Yet he's my hope. God, you're my everything. This is not about me. This is, this is about you. You're my deliverer. You're my strength. Maybe it is that you you do recognize that you're very good at sitting upon the throne in your own life. And this morning's a moment of just humility. God, would you take your place? I surrender again to you. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm trusting in you. Two more questions. How's your worship? just here on a Sunday how do your words 
the way that you respond to people. How do they reflect an attitude of worship? And is there stuff this morning that is, as we allow the Spirit to examine our hearts, we know we've got to deal with. You're right, I'm, I'm holding on to... I'm holding on to bitterness. Maybe you're even there thinking, yeah, but you, you don't understand. You don't understand the years of what I've gone through, what I've put up with in this relationship, what I put up with from my family. You, you, don't, you don't understand the things that have been done to me. And you're right, I don't understand. But I do know that hanging on to stuff is only ever doing damage to you. And that there's a Savior who hung on a cross and He simply said, Come all you who are weary and heavy laden, come and lay down your burdens and find that which your soul is truly longing for. Find rest. Find freedom. Find salvation. If you don't know Jesus this morning, it is honestly the privilege of my life and would be to lead you into the everlasting arms of your Heavenly Father. So I'm going to pray and I want you just to allow the Lord to just show you if there's any of those areas that apply. If there is, then I want us to respond Appropriately. So, Father, I just thank you for that reality. As we've talked about a lot of different things, we've covered a lot of territory. But I thank you for that passage right in the middle, that little verse that you are a God who gives more grace. Whatever we've done, wherever we've been, wherever we are today, there is grace. There's grace poured out beyond measure. There's grace that enables us to recalibrate our hearts, to deal with the things we need to deal with. There's grace to know and encounter afresh this God who jealously yearns for our affection. And I pray that as we come before you today, that more than anything, that's the reality that we'd see. The wide open arms of a Heavenly Father He's calling us home. He said, I've done everything that could be done. You are mine. I stamp your life. Seal it with the Holy Spirit. Redeemed and purchased with the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you love us so much that you don't want us to stay there. You don't want us to be a people who fight the wrong battles, who get caught up in all this different stuff. You want us to fight well, to resist the devil, to stand for you. So help us, even today, to do just that. Get the prayer team just to come forward. You know, we, we offer ministry each and every Sunday, prayer ministry, just because 
we believe that it is something that's so important. I don't know why every church wouldn't do it. I know many churches don't. But there are moments and there are times. It's both a way for you to respond to anything the Lord's saying, but also to receive prayer. And so if there's anything this morning that the Lord's put upon your heart and you know that you'd love to just come and receive prayer, now's your moment. It doesn't have to be about something to do with the message today. It could be anything else. If you need prayer for healing, if you need prayer for encouragement, whatever it is, I want to invite you to come. There's an open table of the mercy of God. If you want to meet Jesus, if you want to encounter Him, come forward boldly and see me. I would love to introduce you to Him. So thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. Bless you all. Look forward to meeting with you again next Sunday. If you want prayer, just come now.